Telecast, the TV industry news review. What's the current health of the UK independent TV production sector? And what are the key issues it's facing right now? What about Channel 4 privatisation, bullying allegations and carbon neutral production? And how do you identify and deal with mental burnout? On this week's show, I'm chatting with PAC CEO John McVeigh and speaker, consultant and Harvard Business Review author Jennifer Moss as we discuss business and well-being issues faced by TV executives not just in the UK but around the world. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast. My first guest on this week's show is John McVeigh, Chief Executive of PACT, the UK Producers Alliance that's celebrating its 30th anniversary. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Justin. Very nice to be back here and uh, nice to chat to you. Great to have you on the show again. Before we take a look at the past and those 30 years of PACT, and obviously there's lots of future issues that I want to discuss as well, let's just take a, a moment to look at the present day and things that are happening in the UK for indie producers. So first of all, can you sum up what you think the health of the UK indie sector is right now? Uh, well, I think it's very good, actually. I think we've managed to get our industry restarted pretty quickly compared to many other industries in the UK's creative economy. Production is at levels uh, exceeding where we were uh, March last year. Order books are filling up. Broadcasters are commissioning. We can't get enough crew. We have a massive skill shortage, particularly mm. for scripted. We don't have enough studios post-production is chock-a-block. So I think we're actually in pretty good health. Uh, Not to say there aren't still challenges, not to say there's not still burdens caused by the pandemic in terms of costs and working practices, which are still under full COVID protocols. Hopefully they will change maybe after the 19th of July, once we know a bit more from our government. But, you know, we've done a recent survey and uh, while it was a rocky time last year, I think everyone's now you know, working at full pelt. And what we're seeing now, presumably, is lots of productions that were paused or delayed, all starting to come back. Netflix is coming on and tripling the price that they're willing to pay for, you know, staff and studios and everything. And that's obviously causing a bit of a logjam, which is something that we we thought might happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a first world problem. I'd much rather we had um, more jobs available than we could fill, that we had more opportunities than we could take. Rather than people were on the dole, we didn't have an order book and people weren't investing. So yes, it does throw up difficulties. Yes, um, people are unhappy that it's difficult to get the right level of crew at the right time, at the right place, at the right price. But it's a much better place to be than the alternative. And I suppose many of these crew will have gone a few months without actually any yeah. any work at all so they're recouping their losses if you like yeah and look well. you know i mean i think i mean in the short term i get that and i think that's perfectly reasonable the long term price inflation will just damage our competitiveness and we won't be as an attractive a place to make things or for people to come and make things so there's a fine balance there about how how far you go with that um right now i think people are rightly getting money back into their bank accounts helping to you know um, make sure their mortgages are paid if they've had a mortgage holiday. Um, that, that's fair and reasonable. But, but going forward, we have to be really cautious about where that goes. 
that's a whole issue that we could perhaps discuss on a future show. But um, yeah. I wanted to touch on a few other areas and things that are happening within the UK indie community right now. So as well as those many positives and the growing exports of UK produced content all around the world, we perhaps can't also acknowledge a few negatives. And there's been a few high profile cases recently of bullying allegations concerning producers. Uh, And talent. (laughs) And talent, Um, of course. I mean, yeah, and look, I think I think this is a really serious issue which the industry is pulling together. I'm part of the Coalition for Change Working Group. You've just seen announcements by Sky. Um, across the piece, everyone is focusing on this. We are making more avail- resources available for producers so that they can better understand how to deal with complaints, action complaints, fairly and reasonably for anyone, whether they're a freelancer or a member of staff. I think everyone recognises that the optics on this, that somehow this is a toxic industry, uh, is really counterproductive. I don't think it's entirely true. I don't think this is a this industry is any more toxic than many other parts of society. But clearly in an industry where people uh, live more hand-to-mouth and where power can be maybe more easily abused uh, in that context, I think it's something we all take very, very seriously and there's a lot of work going on to address it. It's high pressure, isn't it? It's high pressure, it's high stakes. I mean, if you are, and this is by no means excusing a producer who's acting inappropriately or shouting at people but it's a an industry where you as a producer you may have built your company you've got a huge show huge amount of money on the line huge pressures to deliver great content in a in a short period of time you can actually see where perhaps the issue has developed and and is perhaps not not that surprising yeah, or it might be the director or a, um, a fellow member of the cast who's doing that. <laughs> mm. um, I mean, none of that, that doesn't excuse it. It's basically saying where those behaviours abuse power, uh, then clearly that is abuse and that is bullying. Uh, and that needs to be sorted out because it is entirely counterproductive. Any any producer who thinks that they're going to get a happy crew working at their optimum creative abilities by shouting at them, is misguided. And indeed, all the successful producers I know are absolutely not like that. They they care deeply about the experience of their crew and their cast and the people who work with them and for them, uh, because that's what you want. You want a, a happy production team doing the best work they possibly can. I think it's positive that the industry is really taking these issues seriously. And, uh, and as you say, there are working groups in place. And obviously a lot of their customers in terms of networks and commissioning businesses are are also taking this seriously as well so hopefully this will this will be something that you know before too long will be more or less stamped out we could have also been talking on telecast over the past few months about lots of different issues that perhaps are becoming more of a priority and rising up our agenda once we've had chance to consider things during the pandemic and climate change has has become one of the key issues to society as as a whole now we know that again we've touched on natural history production for example being you know a very carbon expensive if that's a term type of production but of course there are lots of other other genres i'm sure some of the bigger dramas and and really big blue chip productions as well just purely by the number of people involved moving about 
are fairly damaging when it comes to carbon emissions. Do you think we might see a carbon neutral UK production industry anytime soon? Do you think the industry is taking that seriously enough? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it was producers who, who set up Project Albert, which is the agency under BAFTA, which helps put all productions mitigate and manage their carbon footprint on production. I think we can all go further. I think it's an important issue for our workforce, for our audiences, for our clients, for our customers, uh, and the industry has got to try and um, you know get to a point when it will get to some sort of carbon neutral i wouldn't like to say there will be still some activities where you know you will need to fly people to a certain remote location but it's what else you can do as well to offset that or to minimize your other you know your your um carbon footprint on other things as well so i think um that's how we'll see things developing going forward but you know i know a lot of the young people you're mentioning the industry now and i've got three kids who are all in their early 20s this is something they care passionately about Now, in terms of other issues that are facing the UK production community, we saw a little while ago the UK government announcing it was conducting a review into the future of Channel 4 and considering whether to privatise it or not. From your standpoint, what are the implications for UK indies? And could there be any positives if it were to be privatised, do you think? Well, we don't know what the positives are because the government hasn't published any evidence to say what its analysis is, which would justify why they might want to privatise it. And in the privatisation, what would that mean? What would it look like? Would it retain its full remit? Would it be a publisher broadcaster still? There's a whole range of issues which are the government has not yet actually published any evidence to support other than them saying, well, we we think we'd like to flog it. What you flog, how you flog it, is the is the sixty four thousand dollar question? Channel four, under its current model, is probably the most optimum model for delivering real value to UK PLC. Because while Channel four is effectively a not for profit, it doesn't distribute profits. All the money goes back into programming. That programming spend goes back out to indies. Indies deliver programs for Channel Four, which Channel Four monetizes. We then monetize the IP in those programs internationally and domestically, and we make profits, which goes back into UK PLC through tax, wages, and corporate taxation. So the the multiple effects of Channel Four in the economy is significant, and we'll be doing some additional work looking at its multiple internationally, both in terms of hard cash, but also to some extent soft power driven by a pound of Channel 4, what does that do for the UK, uh, both domestically and internationally? Uh, and I think if you're going to change that, you have to be pretty sure that what you're going to get is better. Uh, and I'm, I've not seen any evidence yet which has convinced me or my board or the 750 packed members that Channel 4 being uh, owned and controlled by uh, another uh, broadcaster, both either domestic or international, will deliver a better return to the UK as a society than its current model. And when we talk about the UK production community as well, obviously Channel 4 doesn't produce any of its own content, whereas we're seeing in lots of other uh, broadcasters in the UK, they do. They they produce much of their content or a lot of their content in-house. So actually, when it comes to building and establishing and supporting the UK production community, that's really 
where Channel 4 comes into its own, doesn't it? As well as having the Nations and Regions initiative yeah. and obviously taking diversity very seriously as well. Yeah. I mean, the bitter irony here is the minister who's looking at this, John Whittingdale, uh, worked with Margaret Thatcher to set up Channel 4 and give a boost to the U- the nascent UK indie sector in the early 80s. Um, and that unleashed, um, I wouldn't say it was party political, but unleashed a generation of entrepreneurs and continues to this day to inspire people to say, I'm going to set up a production company and I'm going to make a show for Channel 4. That's a good thing. I mean, when we opened up free membership last year to all producers in the UK, we discovered several hundred more startup businesses who I'm sure are targeting a lot of their ideas at Channel 4. So if you're going to change its uh, publisher broadcaster status, well, where do they go? Where are they going to go and get a gig if every other broadcaster is has got a wholly owned in-house production capacity? That's going to close down what is basically a, a gem in the British TV crown, which yeah. is its UK, which is the independent sector, which is the envy of the world. It's like a bit of a ladder, really, isn't it? Because through all four, their digital production, you know, you can yeah. really build your way up and you build your production experience if you're a, a small indie through short form, through into the longer form programming, or indeed focus purely on digital and, and content for their social channels and really cut your teeth at that level as well. But yeah, other- exactly. And, and it's the most open, accessible network there is. It's now more dispersed across the UK uh, under its current uh, management team with Alex Mahan. It's really wrapped up its engagement with a whole range of more diverse suppliers, more creativity, more ideas, that's good economically, but it's also good culturally. And it's good for us as a society to make sure there's space for people we might not agree with or views we might not understand or experiences we have no idea about. I think that is healthy. And Channel 4 is absolutely critical in that. I can't understand what the rationale is to even launch an investigation into you know the viability of the idea, because other than just flogging it off to you know boost the uh, the state coffers you would think that's a, would be an extraordinary short-sighted action i mean that's the problem i mean what what is the value you know if you flog channel 4 off for a, a billion pounds it's a rounding error on the national debt it doesn't do anything <laughs> to help what do you lose in the longer term what's the value you've lost to the overall cultural and creative economy is a a more critical question and one I don't think the government has answered. I think they are worried that Channel 4 needs greater access to larger sums of capital. But if you look at something like It's a Sin, It's a Sin wasn't made at a Netflix per hour budget, but it was one of the most highly watched shows last year. It's gone on to win many, many awards. It was an amazing piece of British culture. It's done well commercially. It's been syndicated to other territories around the world. Bigger isn't always better. Smarter is always better. More relevant is always better. But, you know, you can spend, you know, £4 million an hour on something and it may be rubbish. Hmm. It's not It's not bigger isn't always better. I think that's a very archaic way of thinking in a, in a world where being more focused and more targeted, as Channel 4 is, on who your audience is, is how you, how you win ratings it's how you engage with people and of course as we've seen with the performance of all four um which is the most successful free vod service in the uk you can build substantial numbers of eyeballs um 
to engage with and to to give a great experience to, and they will come back. Will PACT be involved in any of this consultation around the future of Channel 4? Oh, I think you can say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, uh, well, we, we'll... Given, uh... given PACT was one of the agencies that helped get it set up in the first place, um, you know, I, I think we'll be standing side by side with Channel 4 on the debates uh, and on making the case on why its current model is, uh, you know, unique, but a very valuable one. That's, again, something that's going to rumble on, I'm sure, for the next few months. And we'll, uh, we'll no doubt return to this when we see things uh, developing a little bit more. Another development that could affect the UK production community is this new document that's been leaked through The Guardian and also picked up by uh, Hollywood Reporter, signalling proposals to exclude UK programming from EU content quotas which could have a major impact on international content sales to the EU, which is slightly disturbing when you think that the EU is the second biggest customer for UK content behind the US. So is this threat real and can anything be done to halt it? Well, I think it's a live debate. I mean, there is a consultation paper that's been issued by the Commission, which is basically asking a question that uh, basically is, is this a problem? Yep. And it's in, in light of the pandemic. Uh, and that's because we are a net exporter to Europe. Whether that will lead to us being excluded quickly is another matter, I think. Uh, I think we need to keep an eye on it. I think we need to make sure our government is very cognizant of the issues, uh, that they're paying attention to why this is important. But, you know, our our qualification comes under a Council of Europe treaty. So if the Commission wants to change it, effectively, they'll have to change international law to do that. Uh, and there are many other signatories to that convention. So um, it's not going to happen overnight. But clearly, post-Brexit, that is a debate that is going to remain live and one which, you know, we at PACT raised literally four weeks after the referendum, <laughs> mm. uh, that this is something we would anticipate coming into the frame. I don't think it's going to affect sales this year, next year, but it's something we do need to be very sensitive to. Will any of these new trade deals that the UK government is desperately uh, striking in the wake of Brexit, a new one with Australia fairly recently, I don't get any sense of any benefit to UK producers within that, is there? I mean, with these new trade deals that have been struck all around the world, can we see any tangible benefits anytime soon, do you think? Well, not really. I mean, I remember sitting around a table several years ago with the government explaining how the international TV markets were more or less completely open. I mean, every country has certain interventions that um, support their domestic broadcasting sector in the same way we have the BBC or, or indeed Channel 4, who we were just talking about, or we have our PSB system. Every country has something like that. But the trading of TV, IP and product, other than cultural or political issues, is a pretty much a free market and has been for many, many years. So uh, our view is, please do not mess that up. Um, we actually have a global market, which we are um, you know, very important in, and you know, we don't want to see 
our opportunities being traded away for chlorinated chicken or for some other side benefit, which the government might might think it's important. So that is something that myself and the broadcasters are very active on. Uh, and we are in constant dialogue with governments about these free trade agreements. Uh, we're a very attractive audiovisual market, and we have to make sure that whatever free trade agreement is done doesn't damage uh, what we have. Uh, do you think the UK government is fully cognizant of the value of the UK's international exports when it comes to audiovisual content? I mean, I know this is something that you're, you've been lobbying for, well, for as long as I can remember. But do, do you think it, it really, you know, strikes at the at the heart of government? Do you think that they really see the UK exports in this sector and consider those as important as, I don't know, livestock or manufacturing? Do, do you think it really sits at the, at the top table with them? We've all worked very hard, not just me, but our colleagues across broadcasting and elsewhere, to make sure they understand what they do with that is a matter for them, but um, they can't actually say that they're ignorant uh, of the issues and they can't, they can't say they're ignorant of the export value and the multiple effect in our economy of the UK's audiovisual economy. I think uh, that's something we've made very clear through many reports and many representations. Coming back to your 30th anniversary, and many congratulations for that. Clearly, the organisation has had a real impact on UK content industry over those three decades. What, in your opinion, are the three main achievements of PACT in that time? It's hard to boil it down to three because we we cover such a wide waterfront, really. Um, I mean, things I'd look at, well, clearly pre-PACT and organisations that existed before PACT was formed in 91 were very active in creating Channel 4. So that's important. That's part of our legacy, part of our history and our DNA. Um, In 91, we got the 25% quota introduced, which opened up the UK TV market for all indies on all broadcasters, rather than just us working just for Channel 4 effectively. That was very important. The terms of trade in 2003, which means that Indies own their rights if they work for one of those PSBs, was transformative. Uh, yeah. When I started at PAC 20 years ago, we were a cottage industry, or as I used to say, you know, we're in a soup kitchen and occasionally we get a bit of bread to go with the soup. Now we're a global sector. Uh, and I think that's the third one that oh, since the terms of trade and the the work we've put in along with colleagues in government and Indies, we've opened up the global markets to UK Indies and that now accounts for a third of total revenues in terms of original commissions. So it's about a billion pound a year now. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, none of us would have imagined that UK Indies would be winning over a billion pounds worth of commissions from non-UK buyers. Uh, let alone our exports, uh, finished programme exports. And I think that's been transformative as well. We have members now who, some of them, work exclusively only for North American networks or channels. No one thought that was possible 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. It's strange to think, isn't it, when you look back, that, correct me if I'm wrong, but before Terms of Trade came in, were UK producers pretty much 
working for hire in the same way that US producers well, are? Almost exclusively, apart from ITV, which because of the ITV networking arrangements and a competition case that was brought, Indies always owned the rights for ITV shows, but of course, very few Indies ever got to work for ITV. So other than ITV, you were a gun for hire. Uh, we had terms of trade prior to 2003, but they weren't worth the paper they were written on because they, they weren't uh, part of the license or regulation. So that was the task when we started the campaign in 01 was to persuade the government to write that in law in the Communications Act where Indies owned and controlled their IP and they licensed it to the broadcasters. And of course, over the nearly two decades now since that was introduced, how we license, what we license, what we get paid for it has changed to react to the changes in the market. And that's been a healthy thing for producers and a healthy thing for our domestic broadcasters. Now, you've just launched a new initiative to tie into your anniversary activity. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the future 30? Yeah, well, basically, we're going to give free membership for several years to 30 companies, new companies. They can be existing members or non-members. We're going to wrap around that membership a whole range of other opportunities in terms of networking, mentoring, access to buyers, a whole range of um, support uh, for those companies. Because what we're trying to do is really look at the next gen. So this is us investing our money into the next generation of growing businesses um, you know, the new startups, the ones who are growth companies, the ones who are going to be disruptive, the ones who are going to be innovative, much like where we started. That's PAX DNA. That's where we come from. So we want to help a cohort of the next generation companies uh, who are diverse, who are from out of London, to be the next all three medias of the future or the wall-to-walls or the RDFs or the sheds That's or the or the hat tricks. Uh, we want to see that, that next gen coming through and we want to help them get there. Hmm. Oh, sounds great. Are, are uh, podcast producers eligible for this, John? Uh, audiovisual. Audiovisual. Okay. <laughs> the, mo- the moving image, I think. <laughs> yeah. Right. Makes a note to uh, to do more video. We don't do radio uh, <laughs> or, no. or podcast. No, no. Not our thing. Okay. No. no. Looking to the future, then, what do you see on the horizon? What are the big opportunities and what do you think are the big challenges for Indies in the next, say, five years? The recovery of the global markets, I think, will will go at pace. I think there will be significant changes navigating the massive consolidation. You know, as we've seen with Discovery and others recently, uh, how do we navigate that? What's what? What are the opportunities there? Is going to take some time to understand, but I think there will be opportunities. What they are, I'm not quite clear about yet. Um, so I think that's going to be opportunities and challenges um, or opportunities and, and threats, potentially. I think making sure our domestic PSV system is healthy, thriving and vibrant is still business critical. That's where we generate our main business from. It still accounts for 80% of commissioning. It's where we get IP from under the terms of trade. So I think how that changes and adapts going forward is going to be a, a constant issue with us. And I think, yeah, that'd be about it for me just now. The, the pandemic has tended to sort of shorten down our our sort of strategic vision um, mm-hmm. because I think while we are we are looking at high levels of production, we're still in recovery. We've still got a long way to go mm-hmm. to get back to business as usual. Yeah. John, I mean, it's it's fascinating to speak to as as usual. Really looking forward to you tackling 
all of these issues on behalf of the UK production community going forward. And I'm sure we'll be reading about lots of new initiatives and things happening in the coming months and years. So always a pleasure to have you on the show, John. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Justin. You take care. Now, we've been covering various aspects of the COVID crisis on telecast in recent weeks and months, and not least the physical and mental impact on those who work in the content industry. And now following 15 months of lockdown, in the UK at least, restrictions, changing working patterns, longer working days, and the stress and insecurity that comes with all of that, and paused productions and and all the other aspects that we've all been through over the last year or so, it's no surprise that many people are feeling the sensation of burnout. I'm joined this week by workplace expert and author of Unlocking Happiness at Work, Jennifer Moss, who's going to be discussing the concept of occupational burnout. Welcome to Telecast, Jennifer. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Now, Your recent piece in the Harvard Business Review on burnout is really fascinating, and we'll include a link to it in the episode description so everybody can go and have a read of it. Let's let's start at the beginning. Is burnout a real thing, or is it just one of those terms that you're a bit tired, oh, I've got burnout? Is it a real thing, and how can you tell if you or somebody else has it? You know, it's a really great question, and it's been a frustration, I think, for a lot of experts in the the field for um, quite some time because, you know, this concept of burnout kind of feels like, you know, someone sitting on their couch doing too many drugs or it's, uh, you know, this idea of just whiny millennials complaining about workload, and yet it really is a catastrophic experience when people burn out. I mean, about 150,000 people in the U.S. alone die from chronic stress at work. So there's there's real reasons why we need to be thinking about it seriously. In 2019, the WHO finally included it in its international classification of diseases and defined it as occupational phenomena, stress left unmanaged at work, can be the cause of burnout. And it really is important for us across the workforce um, and leaders really do need to buy into the fact that there's a role that they play. And we as individuals also have a role to play, but when it comes to burnout, we want to be, you know, thinking more clearly about when we're burning out the signs of burnout and that it's a really serious thing for us to be paying attention to. Yeah. World Health Organization said burnout's a real thing and it's a phenomenon that many people are experiencing. You touched on it. What causes burnout? Well, there's six root causes. Um, they're unsustainable workload, perceived lack of control, insufficient rewards for effort, you know, proper compensation essentially, but also rewarding and recognizing the right people, um, lack of supportive community, which is really just isolation and loneliness. We see a lot of loneliness at work and it's exacerbated this year. Issues around diversity, inclusion, polarization, um, big issue around wage deltas. um, That's a big one, disproportionately impacting women um, and marginalized groups. And then mismatch values and skills, you know, people that are not connected to the goals and the mission of the organization is one, uh, lots of overqualifications from an economic crisis that happens, but then also just regularly when managers get moved up into manager roles and they're really better at individual contributors and they you know, aren't great at management, but that's the only way they can move up. So these are the six root causes, which are obviously not solved by more yoga, you know, more 
technology really is institutional and a we problem to solve in organizations. Businesses have obviously been adapting to COVID crisis, but I think we've all found that we're working longer hours. And there's also an added added stress of actually not being in the office. There's almost like an overcompensation, I think, that maybe people have been working those longer hours. And particularly if it's a you know transatlantic or an international business, then you know, time zones start really kicking in. So that can be an issue. But companies, how have they been dealing with it up to this point? And maybe we can talk a little bit later about how they will be best dealing with it in future. But but how, how have they dealt with it over the past sort of year of the pandemic? Well, I've had the fortune because I'm writing now, well, it's finished, it um, launches September 28th, my newest book, The Burnout Epidemic. And uh, working with Harvard Business Review has been really helpful. They're my publisher. And we were able to get you know data in a survey that we put out along with um, really you know foremost experts in burnout, Dr. Christina Maslach, Dr. Michael Leiter, and Dr. David Whiteside. The four of us got together and looked at how people were feeling in the pandemic, what leaders were doing as well. And uh, we did find across 46 different countries that burnout is universal. Around 89% said their well-being had suffered. And uh, 85% said um, that their you know work-life balance had declined. So there was just these significant impacts on people. And some employers that I researched for the book were doing a really good job of understanding that it was going to require a lot of communication, a lot of, you know, putting information out there, but then also taking information in and asking questions and being empathetic leaders and human-centered leaders because we we aren't in business as usual right now. There's no frame of reference really for leaders to figure it out. You know, we were hitting these productivity goals if you look at the metrics, but people were working about 30% more each day to hit to those same pre-COVID goals in the middle of a time where there's all these other external stressors. Mm. We increased number of meetings by 24%. We added 48 minutes to the workday. It just sort of lit a match to a workforce in drought. These issues were already issues long before. You know, I've been writing about burnout and studying burnout for years, you know, helping people deal with remote teams. And then here we are. And uh and it's like All of those things just got blown up and exploded Mm. this year without really just giving people space and understanding and compassion for the fact that this is a a unique time for them. And I give a lot of compassion to leaders as well, because they were going through it too. They had all of these, you know, pressures placed on them to be stoic and to make sure their team was being taken care of. But at the same time, they're still juggling homeschooling or, you know, dealing with loneliness and disconnection from their teams. They sort of threw a lot of things at the wall at the beginning, a lot of well-being programming, and they've since sort of pulled that back. Mm. Um, But the strongest leaders really just actively listened and asked what people needed and checked in more and then responded accordingly. Yeah. Coming back to the workforce and people that are, you know, not the leaders, like you mentioned, they've almost been like soaking up a lot of this extra stress. They've been going through all of this stress and actually, as you say, still delivering on their goals under these extraordinary circumstances. So just looking at employees, who suffers the most? Is it the more junior team members that have been suffering from burnout the most? Or are we finding leaders and people right at the top of the tree are the ones that are that are really suffering burnout? 
Well, you know what, when we took our analysis, this was during the second wave. And so people were pretty fatigued at that point. But I would say now if we were checking in again, people are are feeling exhausted. But in some environments, it depends really where you live. I mean, when you, I have um, organizations that I work with where two thirds of their workforce is in, in India, it's a different experience for them than it would be for those living in the, this US where they're seeing a little bit of you know opportunity or in the UK where they might be feeling like there's hope on the horizon. So it varies between you know country too and community, but we are finding millennials are suffering the most, which would be surprising for a lot of parents. Women are disproportionately impacted, but those young people in the workforce living alone who might have started their job for the first time in the pandemic, had no real relationships with the people that they were working with, feel very isolated and disconnected. We also see an increase of single occupancy dwellings in the last you know, decade or so. And in urban centers where young people are living, they're, they're living alone. And so when you see this increase in loneliness and isolation in a year where that just was exacerbated, and then a lot of young people feeling like their career has been stalled, like they had to be set back a couple of years, all of this is really culminating into feeling that cynicism or that hopelessness, uh, which is a a big um, symptom, a sign of burnout. Um, Women did add about 15 to 20 hours of unpaid labor to their work week. And that has disproportionately impacted women as well. Um, And then particularly women in vulnerable groups. Those are the two big groups that have been highly impacted through the pandemic. Again, different reasons, you know, coming from, you know, and resulting in the same outcomes, essentially. How do we beat it? Some countries obviously are at different stages of battling the pandemic. And I mean, here in the UK, we're a very large proportion of the country, as is the US, double jabbed. Everyone's you know fully inoculated. And, you know, hopefully we're still testing things, but you know, we might become a little bit more free over the over the summer. So that's obviously going to help, I guess, when it comes to the socializing aspect of what you said, particularly with young people, when you know loneliness has been one of the uh, factors. But we're going to be returning to the office, hopefully, some point soon. Or oh, some people may may not say hopefully. We don't know. What would be your tips for beating burnout going forward, knowing what you know now and knowing what you've learned through this survey that you did with Harvard Business Review? Uh, you know, I would love to be able to provide some sort of silver bullet solution. The book has 100,000 words probably because there's a complex and complicated way to solve for it. But you have to break it down into three chunks. And really the first is understanding it from a system-wide thinking organizations need to be thinking about a well-being strategy as being um, different than a burnout prevention strategy. And that's dealing with like big issues like equity and pay and um, inclusion and diversity and thinking about, you know, how we organize our workplaces in the way that will be most purpose-driven for employees and dealing with the legacy of overwork. Those are big systems. But inside of, you know, teams, I recommend really for managers, the first step to helping prevent burnout in their teams is consistently every single week from now, I say until eternity, it's a lifestyle change, not a diet inside of an organization to change culture, 
to every single week be checking in consistently and making sure that when people understand that it's going to be a consistent communication, they might not share with you immediately what are the issues that they're facing every week. But over time, if they know that that is just always going to exist for them, that place, that psychologically safe place for them to talk to their manager, then they'll start to open up. And I suggest they ask these three questions. You know, what were your goals this week? And, you know, what was your plan this week? What were the barriers, personal, professional, to those goals? And then the third one is, how do I make next week a bit easier? And then the team can ask each other, how do we help each other to make next week easier? You ask those questions consistently that can help at a team level. And as individuals, especially leaders who are really bad at self-care, they need to remember that employees can't be what they can't see. And so modeling behaviors, if you want to really change the culture of overwork, or if you really want to change, you know, a culture of burnout, then you do have to walk the talk. You have to take those times in your day to digitally reset. You do need to have times without Zoom calls. You need to actually reduce the amount of, you know, Zoom burnout. You have to do a whole bunch of those practical, tactical applications all the time yourself so that employees realize it's celebrated. But there's a lot of different ways that we can tactically start working in a micro-targeted way to to solve for it. Um, But it means that it it sort of has to start small and then over time it will eventually change. It's difficult, isn't it? Even if you're a leader of a small business, for example, you don't have to be a captain of industry to know that you need to make those small changes and you need to act first and show that leadership. And it's difficult if you're you're stressed out, you've got to get that contract written or get that invoice out or whatever it is. And it's like, no, actually, it's more important to take an hour out and decompress a little bit. Yeah. You know, as a person that um, has led a team and led a company, I have had lots of times where I have had, you know, had this mindset of the false urgency for the client, you know, the client needs it. Well, then we all have to scatter and respond. And and that would lead my team to burning out. And it was upon self-reflection that I came to understand that the client needs or the customer needs or, you know, all everyone else that, you know, wants you to react so quickly is not necessarily your responsibility to respond to that urgency. Often it's just about management expectation. You know, when do you really need this? And, you know, let's put our priorities together and analyze, you know, where our team is working and how resourced we are, how much training they have to handle that expectation. You know, all of those things that you have to be more aware of because it can feel like we're just constantly beholden to these false urgencies. And when you, you know, really have a priority and my priority you know, has been very set that um, it's concentric and my family is first. And so when I think about what happens if I don't, you know, if I don't respond to that, those priorities, what will be my deathbed regrets, you know, not focusing on my family or uh, will I regret not sending that email out at 11 o'clock at night? Or will I regret, you know, missing on whatever 0.5% growth in my company, you know, when I'm on my deathbed and I keep saying every single individual, and this is where individuals have to come to the aspect of burnout and solve it for themselves too, is to really think about priority setting. 
and what really matters and that deathbed regret, you know, priority structure for me is a great one to use. And every single moment where there's a decision of where my time is going to be pulled. And as you do that, um, as an individual, again, we have systems, we have organizational stuff we have to work on, but us as individuals have this obligation to our own mental health and self-care. Um, and when all those things work in harmony, you know, that's where we get to a point where burnout can actually be prevented. It's empathy as well, isn't it? Empathetic leadership and working with your with your workmates, with, with your colleagues. Seems to me that empathy is something that we're entering into an age now where people are naturally becoming more empathetic and actually need to become more you know, caring about their fellow man and fellow workers and fellow, you know, workmates. That seems to me is like the overall kind of approach that we we all need to think a little bit about each other a little bit more and check we're all okay, right? You know, uh, there's this really hilarious stat. It's um, that we, on average, say I'm fine 14 times a week and only mean it 19% of the time. <laughs> and the stats are even lower for people interested in hearing that you're not fine. So we do have to get a little bit better about digging in because people, they're giving you a glimpse of their life, this background that's got, you know, that's all set up and they look polished or they're on, you know, TV for everyone to see in these zoom conferences and no one really knows what's going on in the background. And often it's struggling demands. People are exhausted. There's, you know, family burnout, there's loneliness and isolation. And so we need to ask more. And I've been also saying at the sort of culture of work, we need to be empathetic leaders for sure. But we do that by practicing the golden rule 2.0. So we know the golden rule do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. But the golden rule 2.0 is do unto others as they would have done unto them. And that means we stop creating programs that are in the image of us, you know, my experience and my, you know, my gender, my cultural background, my history, my race, all of these things will play into how I would design a program, a wellness program in my image. I shouldn't be designing it in my image. I need to be thinking about who I'm serving inside of the organization. How am I actually changing you know, their experience of work, am I including them? And that means a lot of empathy, you know, talking to people, listening to what their issues are, creating a psychologically safe environment so that they will even share those ideas with you in the first place. Mm. So it's a, it's a long time of just building trust, creating, you know, that trust, taking information and data and using it and being transparent with it. All of those things build that up. And then you create this really great environment where all people are being seen and heard and um, and cared for. That's going to also be a business asset and an advantage going forward, isn't it? It's not just about money. It's about the whole culture of an organization. So it's actually a competitive advantage for leaders to actually start to practice this sort of approach to, to, to give themselves an advantage when it's looking for talent and hiring the best people. It's really fascinating. And there's a term that you use, which I'm going to, it's going to stay with me, I know, after this chat, which was deathbed regret. And it's like terrifying, but it's actually a really powerful term. I suppose it helps us prioritize what's important, right? It is 
something that I came to after I went through my own burnout. And, you know, the first book on lucky happiness at work was really about helping those organizations get from good to great, you know, working with companies like Lululemon and those others that had pretty good well-being strategies, pretty good mm. foundations, but then they wanted to optimize. And I realized, you know, optimization is so healthy if you are mentally healthy enough to be able to be optimized, you know, but if you are unwell, you just need to get to neutral first. You need to pull yourself yeah. out of that deficit. And I realized I was in a deficit all the time. And yet I was really helping others to optimize. And so that it felt like an irony. And when I went through my own experience of burnout, I had to basically stop everything. I was very, very unwell. And it took about four to six months for me to really reset. And when I did that, I went through this exercise of identifying what are the things that I felt like I had really lost and that I didn't want to lose again. And I don't want other people, and that's maybe why I'm so passionate about the topic and wrote the second book, but a big reason for me is that we can identify when we're burning out along the way. We don't need to hit the point where we have to leave all things, get sick, you know, hit the wall, get to that extreme exhaustion, you know, level, and then restart. We can fix it along the way. And, and that big priority for me all the time is what are my deathbed regrets? If I don't do this, if I say no to this and yes to this, what does this mean? And it does seem a bit morbid, but wow, does it ever get you centered on what means the most to you as an individual? And if we can all even just think as leaders about what our employees, you know, what deathbed regrets are we going to give them? And if that means, you know, working them 60, 70 hours a week so they don't get time to spend with their children or we're, you know, not giving them that access to controlling their own experience. What does that mean when they go home into a society that's polarized, that's taking away their identity? How are they going to feel outside of the workforce? You know, when we think about isolating them in the workforce or there's bullies inside the workforce, we're going to keep them feeling like they can't share how they feel in the world outside. They can't stand up for themselves and they're going to continue to be marginalized. So we have to think in that mindset of our employees and what regrets we might be giving them by the way that we're setting up their workplace. Yeah. Okay. Jennifer, that was fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for writing that piece in uh, Harvard Business Review. As I say, we'll We'll include a link in the episode description to that. And you said you've got a second book coming out. Yes, it's in pre-sale now. Harvard Business Press did um, publish it and it launches in for people that want it in hand on the 28th. It's the burnout epidemic, the rise of chronic stress and how we can fix it. Well, thank you for spending some time with us. Some, uh, some really interesting insights there. Hope to see you in person at some point very soon. Me too. Thank you. Well, that's about it for another week's show. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Telecast and share it with friends and colleagues. And a quick reminder to sign up for our free Telecast Plus newsletter. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week you might have missed, downloadable reports, surveys and content, and exclusive insight and opinion. It's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. Until next Thursday, as always, 
Stay safe.